Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On today's show, the process of transitioning the farm from one generation to the next is a long and difficult process. What makes it so difficult is each family farm business is unique, so no single approach works for everyone. Bob Tosh, a farm and family advisor with MNP, will discuss the roadblocks, the importance of being heard, the difference between succession planning and estate planning, and the first steps in getting that conversation started. Flea beetles, weevils, cutworms, wheat midge, grasshoppers. The list of pests that can impact a crop during the growing season is endless. We have with us entomologist Megan Van Kosky. In addition to her research for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, she's also the co-chair of the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network. She'll talk about how the network is an important tool for producers during the growing season and why there is an increased focus on beneficial insects. When we come back, Bob Tosh. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarland. Farm and Family Business Advisor Bob Tosh with MNP. And we're talking about that sticky subject of passing the family farm on to the next generation. Bob, the mere mention of farm transition planning will make even the toughest farmer cringe. It certainly is a topic that we dance around a lot. So what makes it so tough? Why does everyone find this so difficult? And I, I honestly think it's a combination of factors. It's not like just one thing. And if we just fix this one thing, everyone's going to start running around and doing um, this kind of work. Firstly, there's a there's a kind of resistance to the emotional aspect. So there's a there's a fear that you know we're going to open Pandora's box. We're going to find out that people. Um, want different things and we have no real coping me- mechanism for that and um, at the end of the day if I, I feel I don't want to address this so I'm avoiding conflict which is what we all try and do then not dealing with it is the easy easiest approach and so in family dynamics then you will find the people will avoid conflict. If they feel there's going to be that, then there's going to be people who just say, well, we don't have to even worry about it because here's what the rules are and this is what's going to happen. So I'm not necessarily concerned with what other people think. And then you have people who probably really don't know what it is that they're supposed to do. Like nobody's actually said, here's the 101 on succession planning or, or intergenerational transition so where do they start and so and they might they might honestly think well I've done it because I've done my will or I've done it because I have a retirement plan and so there's just there's just a number of factors about why this is such a, a challenging subject for, for people. Is there something unique about farmers themselves when we're talking about succession as opposed to maybe other business people? For for farmers especially who are very kind of traditional, so there's a very traditional approach to this discussion and um, probably not the best communicators. So there's a reluctance to to get involved in, in something that becomes a little more emotional. And then just a, a kind of value equation. And I always say this, 
the the it's like it's such a, a, a qualitative process. There's no it's not quantitative. You can't measure it. You can't weigh it. You can't kick it. And that's tough, especially farm families, because they're trying to figure out well, what have I got for all of this, and what's and my investment in time, but especially my investment in money to do this. And it's not necessarily something that you have a certain outcome. You know, like I go in and get my tax return done. I know I'm going to get my tax return done. It's going to be filed. There's a certain quantitative process. If I engage in succession planning, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I can't control the outcome. And it appears and feels kind of expensive to have something that you don't necessarily get what you want at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Those are all kind of layers of resistance to doing. And then there's a lot of confusion, <laughs> a lot of noise out there in the business world that says, oh, this is how you should do it, or I can do it for free, or... Um, you know, there's there's approaches to this work which are much less collaborative and much more, I'm going to tell you what the answer is. And so, it's yeah, it's a confusing time commitment that has an uncertain outcome that might cause emotional upset and angst in the family. I really enjoy professional speaker, uh, author, and farmer Jolene Brown, and uh, she declared the three biggest lies of succession planning, and it really hits the mark. Jolene came out with this, and it's, it sits very well with me. The three biggest lies are, are one day all of this will be yours, one day I'm going to retire, and uh, don't worry about your brothers and sisters because they don't care. So those are the three biggest lies, and they're very, very valid. And there's things that we need to deal with. You know, if they weren't lies, then we wouldn't worry about it, would we? We we could just wait until the will was read, and then and everything would be hunky-dory, as they say. But the truth is that Dad doesn't like the idea of retirement, and retirement um, is a is a kind of a taboo word. In, in agriculture and so we've got to call it something different I like to think of dad moving from the CEO position to the chairman of the board position your siblings really do care uh, a very good um, uh, lawyer once said to me uh, blood might be thicker than water but it's not thicker than money and there is, it's valid I'm speaking with Bob Tosh, who is part of MNP's Farm Management Consulting Group, talking about farm transition planning. Every family farm is unique, which is also a challenge because there's no template for a plan. But for a farmer who built this operation, Bob, it's really personal. Now throw into the mix that the family is, uh, you have some that are actively involved in the farm, family that comes home to run a combine in the fall, then goes back to their day job, and then children that like to come home and visit and aren't involved at all. So then it becomes a matter of fair versus equal. So you understand that fairness and the term fair is a perspective. And so everyone has their own perspective of what fair is. And so if you try and focus on a fair outcome, you're going to probably disappoint somebody. Because 
everyone's version of a fair outcome will be different. And, you know, we can run an experiment where I'll give you a scenario and say, what do you think the fair answer is? And I'll get five different answers to that scenario. And everyone will have a valid reason for why they think that their outcome is fair. You know, when we look at our children and we talk about this, this idea of, of who is involved and who isn't, and we use that as a tool for measuring fair, you can, you, you can already see that there's all sorts of uh, things you can run into. For example, did everyone get fair opportunity? Yeah, we might have um, two children working on the farm and two not, but did the ones who aren't working on the farm have the same opportunity? Were they younger siblings? Were they female siblings? Were they, um, did they have allergies? Did, you know, so there's all sorts of things that say, well, well, you know, maybe there's a good reason why those kids aren't on the farm or don't want to be on the farm. Does that necessarily mean that they should be disinherited? And that's a key question. And uh, obviously the challenge with farming is that it's very capital uh, rich but cash poor. So it's not something that's easily divided out and everyone gets their piece and, and walks away. And, it, and so you can see again that, that farming kids probably need some level of preference in order for this thing to succeed. And the challenge is, you've got the spectrum. Farming kid gets all versus all kids get an equal share. And you, you know yourself that probably the right answer is somewhere in the middle of that. But how do we get there? And so the trick, if, it, if you want to call it a trick, is to stop focusing on outcomes and focus on process. So process, did we offer a fair process? And that means that all family members should have an opportunity to be involved in the decision. If I can just interrupt for a minute, Bob, um, in your experience, who is more concerned about this process, the money side of it? Is it the farm kids or the non-farm kids? I think i got to be um, honest and say that there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a culture that, thinks that non-farming kids are the greedy ones and non-farming kids are the ones with entitlement issues. And I actually don't find that. If I'm honest, it's more likely to be the farming kids who are in, who feel entitled and the farming kids who are a little more um, concerned about you know what they should get and, and what the will should say. So... You know, we've got to be careful that we don't paint non-farming kids as, as these kind of money-grabbing, uh, unemotional, um, don't care about what the outcome looks like so long as I get my share attitude. I, I very, very, very rarely find that. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think... It's, it's not, don't worry about your brothers and sisters, but do understand that they do have concerns, they do have a voice. They don't want to see their home go to um, 
an older brother who then gets divorced or gets uh, or loses it or um, or passes away unexpectedly and all of a sudden a sister-in-law they never liked has the farm they grew up on. So they've got some valid concerns in this. They want to make sure their parents are looked after. Oftentimes they want to be able to go home and have Christmas at home and these are all things that, that they want to have some input on. You know, it's one of the lies. And then, obviously, the last one is this one day all of this will be yours. So I want you to keep working for nothing. So it's like the, the, this carrot that's dangling in front of you and, you know, you look at yourself and you're 45 years old with a family and you have no equity and just this promise that you've been working for. And that's not reasonable. We've really just touched the tip of the iceberg, uh, speaking about succession planning with MNP's Bob Tosh. So on our next podcast, Bob is going to guide us through the process of just getting started. After the break, entomologist Megan Van Kosky shares the work of the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network and the beneficial insects that farmers need to protect. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada field crop entomologist Dr. Megan Van Kosky is based out of Saskatoon. She's here with us today to talk about the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network and to tell us that all bugs aren't bad. So Megan, first of all, just uh, give us some history on how the network came to be. I started my position with Ag Canada in uh, t- July 2016. And at the time, the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network was about 20 years old, and it was chaired by Dr. Owen Olfert, who um, actually came up with the idea and established the network in the mid-90s. So the network is a highly collaborative effort across the prairies that involves basically all of the entomologists, um, the provincial entomologists, research entomologists at academic universities, agronomists, um, industry entomologists. It's it's a very wide-ranging group. We involve and train graduate students as well. And the network is, it was established in order to maximize and to leverage existing entomological expertise in order to monitor insect pest issues across the prairies. And so one of the very first things that this group did once they were established is they created unified monitoring protocols for the key prairie pests so that all of the monitoring that happens on the prairies is now done in a consistent fashion so that we can compare results between regions and between provinces and between years. So that was kind of one of the really big pushes of the network was to be able to continue to monitor these pest populations because if we know what's happening with a population, we can make better management decisions for that pest. And so that's kind of um, the, how the network came to be and why it came to be. And what we do now is we conduct annual monitoring and surveillance of about seven different insect pest species that are present in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. We communicate the results of those surveys on an annual basis. We also share um, predictive model outputs to time the development or to predict the developmental stages of those pests during the growing season 
so that we can help growers and agronomists to better time their scouting activities in the field. So really important work and valuable work. What type of pests do you typically follow? I know the list is long, but is there a main focus? Yes, definitely. So the, the key kind of six pests that we survey on an annual basis include grasshoppers, uh, wheat midge, wheat stem sawfly, cabbage seed pod weevil, pea leaf weevil, diamondback moth, and bertha armyworms. And so those are all monitored in slightly different ways. Um, the protocols that we use for the monitoring are all available on the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network blog. Now, you touched on the models uh, when there may be a flare-up or areas reporting some hot spots. Does it give some advice to producers on how to scout for those pests? Absolutely. So the the monitoring protocols that I'm talking about are essentially the, the scouting guide for how to best scout for that insect in the field. So we use the models to give our our subscribers an idea of when they should be scouting and then the monitoring protocols are available to guide how to scout and those protocols are wherever possible we've developed them based on the economic thresholds for the pest so that we um, so that what the agronomist or what the farmer is seeing in the field they can equate to whether or not they need to make a management decision or basically if they should spray or if they shouldn't spray Um, or if they should wait and maybe check again in a week if they should spray, if that makes sense. So, yeah, the the scouting protocols are the monitoring protocols that we use for our surveys. Now, there has been an increased focus on beneficial insects and a big part of the network as well. So why is it important to protect them whenever possible? Absolutely. Beneficial insects are definitely um, getting a lot more screen time, I would say, and and that's excellent. So beneficial insects are basically defined as any insect that provides some kind of a service to people. And so we talk about pollinators as as being beneficial insects. We also, though, include predators and parasitoids of pest species as beneficial insects. So in terms of pest management, the beneficial insects are insects that help to control pest populations, whether that's um, via predation or via parasitism. Entomologist Megan Van Kosky is our guest, and we're talking about beneficial insects. Megan, in recent history, what do you consider would be the most important discovery of a beneficial for pest control? So one of, one of the most interesting beneficial insects uh, on the prairies are the, is the parasitoid of wheat midge. So wheat midge is a, a pest of wheat. Um, the adults lay their eggs on the developing kernels and then the larvae damage the kernels and that can lead to um, complete unsuitability of that kernel for um, counting as yield or it can lead to the, the quality of the crop being downgraded. And so the, the wheat midge has a parasitoid that called Macroglenus penetrans, and that parasitoid lays its eggs into the developing larvae of the wheat midge, and then um, that prevents the wheat midge larvae from continuing to feed on the wheat seed. So that parasitoid is really important, um, and it is actually, we include that parasitoid when we're developing our wheat midge forecast every year. So in the fall, we collect soil samples out of wheat fields 
to determine the population of wheat midge that might emerge and affect wheat in the next year. And if those wheat midge are parasitized, then they're they're not going to emerge as adults in the next growing season. They're going to emerge as the parasitoid. And so we factor that parasitism into the forecast that we develop on an annual basis. The role of the network has been to determine which pests, uh, like let's say flea beetles, are going to be more dominant in a given year. Or are some of these pests just too difficult to track and really uh, impossible for the network? It's definitely both of those things. So for some of the species that we monitor on an annual basis, we have some, we have really good historical data and, and very good information on the biology of those insects that allows us to basically create a forecast between years. So wheat midge is one of those, like I said, we factor in the parasitism levels in the fall populations, and then in the, in the following spring, um, if those areas get enough moisture, wheat midge, is, wheat midge development is affected by moisture levels, um, then we can expect that there's going to be higher low levels of wheat midge based on our knowledge of its biology. Uh, grasshoppers are similar. We have a, a very good idea about the different um, climatic factors or, or weather factors that impact grasshopper populations between seasons. So we do a survey in the fall, and that is used as a forecast for the risk into the next year. Other insects like flea beetles that you mentioned, there are just so many unknowns and uncertainties about their populations that they're very, very difficult to predict between years. And so one of the things that our Prairie Pest Monitoring Network um, is working on for certain species, like the pea leaf weevil, for example, is to learn more about their basic biology and ecology so that we can predict those populations uh, better than we can right now. You mentioned uh, earlier the numerous collaborators that are involved in the network. What role does a producer play in reporting pests on their farm? And in turn, uh, how is that information being shared with other farmers? That's a really great question. Um, the The involvement in some ways does vary from province to province. Um, so we work very closely with uh, the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture here in Saskatchewan and with the Alberta Agriculture and Forestry um, in Alberta to do a lot of the, the monitoring and the sampling. And so in many cases, um, for example, Bertha armyworm is monitored using pheromone traps and so the provinces get a, a number of different collaborators, agronomists, farmers, and they host those traps and then report on the populations in their field on a weekly basis. Um, some of the provinces have developed some online reporting tools. There's a, an online reporting tool for cutworms in Alberta, for example. So if growers if farmers are seeing high numbers of cutworms in their field or a lot of cutworm damage, then they can report that um, to the Alberta Agriculture and Forestry website. And then that information is something that we link to in our weekly updates for the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network. Um, in Saskatchewan, farmers um, can also get involved by volunteering their fields to us so that we can come onto their land to survey for these insects. And then we can provide some real-time information about what's happening on those fields and also use that information for our annual maps and forecasts.
understand you're changing the way you share that information? Yeah, so this is something that's really exciting. Um, we're It's part of the, the current funding that we have for the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network comes from the Integrated Crop Agronomy Cluster, um, which is led by the Western Grains Research Foundation um, and contributed to by a number of the different industry commissions across the prairies. Um, one of the things that we really wanted to do moving forward with the with the network was to expand and, and uh, modernize and update our communications. And so slowly over time, um, we have changed our, our methods of communication. It used to be a purely email subscription that um, information went out to subscribers on a weekly basis. In 2015, my co-chair, Jennifer Otani in Beaver Lodge, her team developed a blog. And so we've been using the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network blog to communicate um, all of the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network information since 2015. It's been very successful and very well received, but there are some downsides to the blog um, in terms of data management and um, archiving storage and, and space and things like that. And so as part of our, our current funding, we have developed a website and the website is basically adapted from the blog, but it has some new interfaces and some new features, we will officially be moving um, to using the website to communicate all of our weekly updates and monitoring protocols and all of the other information that uh, subscribers have come to expect from the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network. Our guest has been entomologist Megan Vankoski talking about the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network. It's time for the Agriculture News Roundup for the week of June 1st, 2020. Pulse Canada announced that India will reduce the lentil import duty rate to 10%. CEO Gordon Bacon confirmed the reduced tariffs will run from June 2nd to August 31st, uh, but there is no indication if there will be an extension beyond that date. A former beef plant in Moose Jaw may have a new life. A British Columbia company said it will investigate whether it is feasible to convert that plant into a sow processing facility. Donald's Fine Foods Industry Relations Manager Neil Kettleson said producers in Western Canada would benefit since most of those cull sows are shipped to the United States for processing with high transport costs. The brand group of companies based in Regina announced the purchase of GeoShack Canada. GeoShack is the supplier of TopCon positioning systems, which provides GPS, laser survey equipment and more for agriculture and a number of other industries. Brandt becomes the exclusive dealer for TopCon construction and geo-positioning products for all of Canada. It's business as usual for most ranches, but feedlot operations and cattle producers are working about the future fallout from the pandemic. Tom Thorlickson operates a feedlot near Airdrie, Alberta, and has 14,000 cattle on site, and it costs him $1 million a month to feed them. He said he and other feedlots are not buying any more animals, and that puts pressure on cow-calf producers. 
Feedlots have been operating at limited capacity due to the pandemic. Farmers who grow malting barley rely on beer consumption, which has likely declined during the pandemic. Peter Watts with the Canadian Malting Barley Technical Centre in Winnipeg said there will be a decline in beer sales with the cancellation of sporting events and concerts. And in return, there will be an impact on farmers who grow and sell malting barley. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.